Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with glad hearts what you say to us today. Amen. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 195 of the New Testament. It's titled, The Christian Household. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husband as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ in the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven and with him there is no partiality. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Peggy and Fritz. And uh, uh, if you were at the fire pit a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, y'all sang the wedding song there and uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And I let folks know that was uh, sung at uh, Lydia's and my wedding uh, 43 years ago this month. And uh, that was a new song back then, <laughs> and we, we loved it, but uh, uh, thank you for that. Uh, and if you're wondering why, why the wedding song on this day and why a song about moms and dads, it's because our passage actually addresses marriage and, and child-parent relationships and also master-slave relationships, which is going to be interesting. I'm going to really focus up in on the 
marriage aspect of this. And all during the week, I thought, wow, I wish I was doing a series through this passage where we could spend some weeks together on it. Uh, it's, it's an important passage, but it's also an extremely controversial passage and has been the subject of, of uh, much controversy uh, ever since the church first started. And when Paul uttered these words, I'm sure they weren't popular among everybody in his audience either, but he still uttered them. One of the challenges of preaching is not to, as you look at the word, think, okay, now how is everybody going to receive this, and how can I deliver it in a way that at the end of the sermon, everybody says, wonderful sermon, preacher, or how can I deliver it in a way that everybody hears it differently, and I can kind of, you know, uh, manipulate and move through the congregation in a way that, again, in the end, everybody says, we're not going to fire you yet, preacher, you know, you're still in here. That's the problem with preaching passages like this is one of the temptations I feel during the week, I think all pastors do, is you start looking through commentaries and things for whoever is going to say the thing that you think people want to hear. You know, this can't be that tough. This can't, I, I don't know if I can say this to a contemporary audience in America. But on the other hand, I was thinking about the section about the masters and the slaves. How would I have preached that as a Methodist preacher back in the 1830s? in an America that was split north and south, free and slave. And a church, the Methodist church at that time, split into southern and northern churches over that issue. And then I look today, how do I preach about husbands and wives in a generation and in a culture that not only is having controversies over human sexuality, and whether or not even people need to get married. It's it's a little bit odd that when you think about the controversy over gay marriage that, that ripped through this country, and so many people wanted to have that right to gay marriage, while at the same time heterosexual couples were choosing not to get married, to live together and not to get married. Uh, the institution of marriage was seen as, as being uh, uh, lessened and not honored anymore by the culture, and yet here was a group saying, but we want it. So we have these battles going on, and actually, I would say that what we're headed for, as I read more and more and I look at the headlines, these these were just some things that came up when I did a a, a little search on the term post-genderism. Now you may say, what in the heck is is post-genderism? Well, post is after, and gender, we know that everybody here has a gender, or, or maybe not nowadays, I'm not sure. But if you do, what it's saying is, is exactly that we're moving towards a time when many people feel we should beyond the question of gender, that we no longer identify ourselves by gender, man and woman, uh, you know, or even those, the terms of bisexual, that those will no longer exist. We won't any longer speak about differences between different genders, and it will become irrelevant. And there's actually... Uh, there are actually a lot of people who really believe that that is where we should move. Now, why that is a problem for us as, as, as Christians is that the scriptures, which don't change generation to generation, remain the same. Cultures change, move back and forth. They, one moment they're allowing slavery, the next moment they're not. They're uh, allowing gay marriage one, one time, but others are not. Uh, we live in a world where different cultures are treating these things very differently. 
But the word remains the same. And so as, as we move through these different times, I feel like there's always going to be that sense in the church of disquiet and an uncomfortability with God's word because we're going to be being pressured by outside forces to believe one thing while his word pulls us back into another set of beliefs. And that tension is, is, is always going to be with us. So how do I address this today? Well, I address it by starting out with saying, I had a poll in the E-Tower this week. I'll just avoid the whole thing. And, uh, and there's a couple of things I'll, I'll just share with you. One was, in the E-Tower, for those of you who know the, the weekly email goes out, this week we had a poll for the first time. And many of you probably didn't know that. Eight of you responded to it. And polls are great because they, they're very decisive. When you take a poll on something you absolutely come to a conclusion, right? So here's what we had. The question was, which of these Old Testament events would you have wanted to witness, to have been there for? And the first one was the landing of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. Would you have liked to have been there for that? Two people said yes. That's smart, because if you hadn't been there, you would have been one of the people under the water. (laughs) Two people said crossing of the Red Sea. That would have been exciting. I wondered about that, though, because that had to be terrifying. You know, these are the people that like, like you know, the uh, uh, roller coaster rides at the amusement park. They, they like terror. But I think, it, and also you had the, the army coming from one end, Pharaoh's army attacking you. So, I don't know, crossing of the Red Sea. Two people, again. Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. Two people. I think that would have been a little terrifying, too. <laughs> to have been in the presence of God and to, you know, everything that was going on there. And then the last one, David slaying Goliath. Zero. Wait, I said eight people. That's only six people. Okay, Rhonda was keeping count over here. So only six of you did. Okay. Oh, and I forgot to respond, so that would have been seven. David slaying Goliath. Nobody wanted to be there for that. I can sort of understand. You know, he goes over, he cuts the head off. It's a little gruesome and, and all too. But think about the party they had after that when the Philistine army left and David's being lifted up on their shoulders and they celebrate for days this thing. It would have been a good, I, I think for party's sake, I would have been there at, with David slaying Goliath. But anyways, this is neither here nor there and has no relevance to what we're talking about this morning. But uh, I just wanted to share that with you. While we're talking about this scripture, and before I get to it in, in a little depth here, uh, I did remember, it reminded me of what I'd like to see happen today from this. And uh, a uh, famous uh, theologian named Kierkegaard once wrote a little parable, and it was about a preacher. Uh, he was a duck, and his congregation was made up of ducks. And they came, uh, all the ducks waddled into church that morning, and he waddled up to the pulpit and got up there, and he launched into a great sermon about how they have wings, and so God meant for them to fly. And he encouraged them to spread those wings and to fly. He was, he was hitting his beak upon the pulpit, just, and the people were going amen, and everybody was so enthusiastic and, and about his message. And finally, he, he told them, folks, as we go out this morning, remember, we can fly. And they all shouted, Amen. And they, they all go waddling out to their homes. <laughs> okay. No one flew home. And that's the way you feel sometimes about church is everybody gets revved up on something. Yes, yes, that's, I, I, I know that. I believe that. But it doesn't 
bring a change about. And so my hope this morning is that as we, we look at especially the passage about the um, relationship of men and women together in marriage, that it would bring about some thoughts, some change. I realize not everybody here is married. Uh, some are widows, uh, different situations. You may know somebody who's married, so allow this to cause you to pray for them or uh, offer them some help in their marriage. But uh, uh, think of some way that you can go out of here and apply this into your relationship. I, I told Lydia yesterday, I said, this has been a tough week for me because every time I'm Every time I am tempted to say no to her when she asks me to do something, I think about this, that I'm supposed to love her as Christ loved the church and give my very life for her. Will you take this out for me to the car? No, I'm too busy, sorry. You know, I mean, the two didn't mesh up together. So, uh, but let's, let's go in here now. Finally, I've done enough avoiding, and uh, uh, are we ready for the doxology? <laughs> this is good. We are. Oh, that was weird. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we have done the doxology. Okay. What we have not had is a benediction. So okay. Yeah, and maybe may, maybe we should have the children come back in. Okay. The passage actually begins this morning, and and sometimes people don't begin this sermon with this with this verse they begin with the verse after it because they say well this verse doesn't really apply when you get into 22 it says wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the lord and they say okay that's where we're beginning to talk about wives and husbands they'll begin the sermon there but if you don't begin with 21 which says submit to one another out of reverence for christ then you're missing a big point here (laughs) see people who begin with wives submit yourselves to your own husbands love to say Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That's what you got to do. They don't want to read the part about where they have to submit to one another. And And Paul doesn't say there that he's only talking to certain people when he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a sense where a husband also submits to his wife. Now, if you're brought up in a very conservative church, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, this guy's going liberal on me. That's not how it is. The wife has to submit to the husband. But we'll see in a minute the form of submission that a husband gives to a wife. You see, uh, Christ submitted when he came. He, he, He would wash people's feet. He had to obey his parents. That's part of this passage here. Obeying children, obey your parents as is right. And it's in the law to honor our parents. Christ was supposed to do that, right? But remember the time he stayed back in Jerusalem at the temple and his parents went off without him and they come back and they're a little upset with him and all too because Christ had to obey his father in heaven above that. And so even Jesus knew that his submission to his disciples was limited in a sense. And if we took this very literally, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and uh, let's say that Morris here has an idea for the fall festival. And I say, well, I have to submit to you because that's your idea, but I have another idea. And then you say, well, I have to submit to you because that idea, because that, I, I need to submit to you and your idea. We just have mass confusion. Uh, the Bible does teach there, 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 is, there are levels. There's a hierarchical sort of system that God has set up where the husband is the head of the, uh, of, of the wife. And, and that 
just sounds like if you're a woman and if you're a female, you're going, oh my goodness, I have a terrible husband. How is that supposed to work? He doesn't know anything. He's an idiot. I know what you're thinking there. Not all of you are blessed like my wife. So... So immediately, we, you see the difficulty. You see the difficulty of the passage here. <laughs> I mean, how do you submit to somebody who it's really hard to submit to? And so, one thing we have to recognize is we often will hear people say this means obey, but it does not. The word there in Greek does not mean that. It really means to undergird, and it's a word that they used in mili- for the military. It was in the sense that the troops undergird the command. So they submit themselves to their commanders, but in a supporting role. So the commander says, we're going into battle, and now they organize themselves in such a way that they can support that goal. But it's really not just whatever your husband says, do it. Because obviously, our primary obedience is to God. So that's, that's where conflict begins to set in. And then we have people who are, as the Bible would say, unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You have a Christian wife and a a non-Christian husband. Or you have one spouse who is very dedicated to their belief and another one who is only uh, sort of wishy-washily, that's a technical term, but I won't get into it, that comes from the Greek, uh, (laughs) into, into his faith. So there's all sorts of things that arise out of this that can confuse it, that have confused me all week as I look, how do I approach this? How do I come into this? How do we get anything out of this? And it all kept going back to that 21st verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why do we submit to each other? Not because a husband says to a a wife, you must submit to me. Our submission is out of reverence for Christ. And a wife may submit to her husband in the sense of supporting him, for the purpose that he might come to know Christ. See in her the light of Christ and the example of Christ. Now I know that's a heavy burden to put on a woman. But the same thing could happen with the man. That he has to take his role as the head and, and, and exert it in such a way that the woman instead of being, being pushed away from, well if this is an example of what a Christian is, there's no way I want to have anything to do with Christianity. But instead she looks and says, you know, my husband... <laughs> This must have been what Jesus was like. You see, that's the goal. And because we revere and hold Christ up as our example, then our submission takes that form. It's it's not a thing of that you just become, uh, you know, a a, a puddle of jello on the floor for somebody to walk over. But it is actually a thing where you have the courage and the strength to do what is right in God's eyes and for the benefit of that spouse in every situation. And I'll tell you, uh, one thing that I think destroys more marriages, and obviously in our country we have a terrible track record. There is a a statistic out there that says, wait, let me... Let me write down what I'm about to get to, or I'll forget it. Okay, because I was about to walk away. Uh, there's a statistic that a lot of people believe that says that divorces is common among people uh, who go to church as it is among people who don't go to church. I don't know if you've ever heard that. People will say that. 
It's actually not really true. And it's all on how you define people who go to church. If you mean that that means that they're, to, that they're believers in Jesus Christ or that they're obedient to God's will, that's not necessarily so. There are people who belong to a church and may show up once a year. They have a very different set of priorities around their faith than someone who comes every week or as, much, as often as they can. Statistically, when they show people who have regular attendance in church and who believe that God's law is priority for their lives, those people, on average, have about a 25% less chance of being divorced than those who do not hold that. That's still not great, but it shows that it does make a difference what you believe here. But one of the things that I, I think that undercuts marriages very often, and I think this is prevalent in our Christian marriages too, um, because we are in a contentious society. Americans don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. We are contentious, and we undercut each other every chance that we get. Churches are famous for people getting together to undercut the authority of their leaders. Uh, this is part of our culture. It's, 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 it's how we got our independence. <laughs> we rebelled against the king. And I don't want to say that's a bad thing because I enjoy the benefits of that. But when it happens in a marriage, it's bound to destroy the marriage. And there are couples who can't agree on anything ever. And why is that? Is it, is it because one of them, uh, that they're both always wrong? Or perhaps it's because you get into the habit of always correcting your spouse. Always saying, I've got to somehow uh, find something wrong in what they just said. And that can become a habit over time. Instead of listening in a supportive role, in, in what you might say a submissive role, which says, I'm listening for the good in this person, you're always looking for the opportunity to take a shot at them and to tear them down a little bit more. That happens a lot in marriages. If we're married in the cultural sense, and if we're approaching marriage in the sense of, I'm in this for me. You see, our, our, our culture teaches romantic love, and compatibility. These are the bases of, of a marriage. But to tell you the truth, a romantic love, which the Bible, obviously the Bible doesn't say you can't be romantically loved, that, in love, that's, that's a good thing to have. Not absolutely necessary. Combat, compatibility can make things easier over time, but also there are people who have a lot of differences they bring to the marriage who somehow find a way to make those things work together in a way that makes their differences even stronger when they come in together. So then what is the key? What is If it's not romantic love alone and if it's not compatibility, which are the two things that our culture offers us to strengthen a marriage and is why so many marriages fail because over time people discover they're not as compatible as they thought they were or they change over time. The romantic love fades, physical attraction fades, all those things fade. So over time marriages begin to crumble. So what is it that the Bible offers that Paul through the Holy Spirit offers here? And this is the key. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if we go back in the first four chapters of Ephesians, almost every other sentence in those chapters, Paul says, do this in Christ. The key here for a successful marriage is for us to do things in Christ. Husband 
and wife. Our goal is not our personal happiness. Our goal is not our personal success. It's not having our way, but it's to do everything in Christ and by his example. I think, actually, after this week thinking about this, I would be a much happier husband if I was more dedicated to my wife's happiness than my own. I would be a much better husband if I was willing at every turn to be so disciplined that when my wife asks me to do something, unless I have a tremendously good reason not to do it, like if she said, walk off the cliff, which she has at times, but, you know, but that I would make every effort to do what she wants me to do. And see, this is very different from the classical idea that the husband lords it over the wife and she just has to be his slave and do whatever. That's not what Paul is saying here. I'll just quickly read you this section when, uh, when we get down here. Okay, first he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, head here we take to mean boss, but that's not what it means. Okay, every, every body has a head, and what does your head do for the rest of the body? It listens. <laughs> Nerves are coming back with messages. I, I'm burning my finger. I'm this. There's a communication. There's a thing going here, but everything runs through the head, and then the head has a responsibility then to coordinate everything. That's what we're talking. We're not talking about coming up with independent decisions that, that are not for the good of the, of the body, and it's the same with the husband. I mean, I hate to say this, but all week I wanted to come up with a way that I could say that this is all about, uh, you know, uh, uh, e- equality and husbands and wives voting all the time and coming to one-to-one ties all the time on everything. I was trying to come up with a way for this, but as I studied the scriptures, despite what our culture says, there is a sense here where the husbands are given a responsibility, a gender-specific responsibility within the marriage. So she is... The the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. What did Christ do for the church? He washed our feet. He died for us. He, He gave an example for us. He loved us. He prayed for us that we would be one. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And again, the meaning here of submission in this case, if we take it in the original Greek meaning, means to undergird and support. The wife should play a supportive role, not an adversarial role, as so often happens in marriages, where the two are always at war with each other. Now, Husbands, love your wives just as, just as Christ loved the church, in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The goal of the husband should be to allow his wife to lead a life that makes the most of who God made her to be and to bring out every beautiful thing about her her body and her soul, to allow her to shine. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. You know, you spend a lot of time at the gym. I I know a lot of you guys, I can see it. You spend a lot of time at the gym buffing up and getting, you know, getting toned. Well, you should spend time with your wives, okay, loving them as much as you love your pecs. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of the body. Okay? That's a heavy demand on a husband here. And a lot of us fail at it. And that's, that's, and that's the, the last point I'm going to make here is that Paul is t- talking about an ideal situation here for two people who are committed to Jesus Christ. And that's not the reality for many, many people in this world. And there are other passages of scriptures, 1 Corinthians 7 and others that deal with marriage and how, how we deal with marriages where perhaps a spouse is not a believer and so forth. Obviously, we don't have time to go into that, but I'm going to say, remember this week as you waddle out of the sanctuary this morning, remember that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, both within the church, within our relationships, parents, spouses, uh, employers. All of us are to submit in that way. That's all I've got. Okay? And, and if, you want, if you want to call me and undercut me and oppose me this week, that's fine because I'm still growing in this. Folks, the thing about God's word is I hope that you understand that, it, you know, people often say, well, it's a handbook. It's kind of like the direction book and all, and you're going to read it and you're going to get a specific direction. And once you know that, you can just close it up. And it's, after all my years of, of reading scripture and the Bible, every time it hits me in the face with something new, and it challenges me. It is meant, I believe the Holy Spirit uh, organized and wrote this in a, in a way uh, through, through, fallen, uh, through fallen people so that every generation from the time of creation until the time that Jesus comes again will be challenged to look at their lives and to say, is my life a glory to God? Am I living the life that God created to be? Is your marriage a glory to God? Are you living for each other in a way that your marriage is an honor and brings joy to God? And amen. Now as we go out in all of our relationships with each other and with God, may we fly. And amen.